When I said it was jam-packed, I wasn't lying. I just want to put that in there. Very busy. We're continuing our series today on Kingdom Carriers, part number four. Maybe the longest series we've ever done in this church. No, there's a few parts yet to come. And so for some of you who haven't been here, and I'll give you a little recap as to what this series is all about. But at the heart of it, what we're talking about is when we become followers of Jesus, when we become Christians, the most amazing thing happens is that God gives us this gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to live within us. My belief is that when the Holy Spirit comes to live within us, it changes everything. That it changes the way that we operate, changes the way that we live, changes the way that we act. And therefore, the premise is this. Whenever we go into an environment, that environment should be changed because God lives in us. It's not about, oh, we're amazing. It's about God's amazing. And if the living God is inside of us and as part of us, then whenever we go into a different environment, that environment should be changed because we're in it, because God's in it. And so that's what it means to be kingdom carriers, is that we are carrying God's kingdom into those environments. And so just to give you a recap on the series, Paul started off by talking about the authority that we've been given in the name of Jesus, that when we pray in the name of Jesus, things happen. And Paul used this analogy of a 10-pound note. And he said, he stood at the front, and for those of you who weren't here, he said, who wants this 10-pound note? And everybody kind of sits there a little bit awkwardly. I don't know what happened here. I wasn't here when it happened. Alistair didn't sit awkwardly in the central site when he was there. He basically ran up and went and paused, like, who wants this £10 note? And Alistair was like, I'll have it, and came and took it. And it was like, oh, um, <laughs> thanks, Alistair. It's supposed to take a little bit longer, but... <laughs> You're £10 richer. But, uh, but really, the, the idea was around the authority is there to be taken. We just have to come and get it. So that was the picture, and it's kind of a profound picture. Um, Matt spoke to you last week. Just about, the, do you know what, the problem of often when we're talking about these kind of things is that everybody disqualifies themselves and they think, James, this is for you. This is because, you know, you're a minister, you're supposed to do these things. It's like what we're saying is that's absolutely rubbish that if we believe in Jesus that this is for absolutely everybody. That it's there. Everybody gets to play is one of our phrases in the vineyard. Everybody gets to play. It's like the Lord speaks to each one of us and it, there is no hierarchy. It's, it doesn't work that way. And then Ian spoke about prayer and really that intimacy leads to authority. So, you, you know, when we're talking about authority, what we're talking about, well, we're talking about closeness to Jesus. It's actually as we draw near to Jesus, as we come near to him, that he will lead us. He leads us um, all the way. And so therefore, intimacy leads to authority. And so I'm picking it up in part four. Um, and then, sorry, you had Steve Nicholson a couple of weeks ago. And he did an amazing job of what happens when the Spirit of God comes in power. That There's a number of things that happens. And the first one is that people will be overwhelmed. If the living God turns up in a room, that's powerful stuff, isn't it? It's like, wow. And um, he taught from a passage in Acts 2, just a brilliant passage. And so just to give you a tiny bit of background before I go into my bit, Acts 2 is one of my favorite passages in the Scriptures. And so what happens is the disciples are sitting there. Jesus has ascended to heaven and the disciples and, and Jesus said, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the gift that I'm going to give you. So they are sitting there terrified. Their, their wonderful leaders disappeared. They're like, he's gone. And can you imagine? I have no idea what this gift is. 
What is this gift that you're talking about? So they would have been terrified sitting together in this upper room, waiting, and then suddenly the sound of a violent blowing wind comes into the room. That's what happens. And then it goes on to say, and tongues of fire come to rest on each one of them. God shows up. They were overwhelmed. And as a result of it, what happens is they, they spill out of this room and they start speaking in other tongues. It's like other languages. Because what was amazing at this time is loads of people had, had been gathered in from all around to come to Jerusalem in this place. And at that moment, and there were so there were many, many different language groups. And at that moment, God breaks in. And then people found people speaking in their own language that the disciples were speaking in other tongues. So it's like, wow, what is going on? So the power of God's come. And as a result, so we pick it up in verse 14 of Acts 2. It says this, then Peter stood up with the 11. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is, yeah, because it's, what's going on? No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know, in that last bit of that passage, you might sit there going, oh, what's, what's this? The blood and fire and billows of smoke. You, you know, I get the first bit. What's the second bit? But the second bit is all referring. This is a pr prophetic word from Joel, one of the prophets in the Old Testament. And he's actually referring back to Exodus in this moment. He's referring back to the ten plagues. So he's at a time when Israel had been rescued. God had rescued Israel. They'd been in slavery and he'd brought them out of slavery and brought them into a new time. This is what, this is, so he's referring back to that time and in the same way God's saying, I'm going to pour out my spirit on everybody. This is a new time. This word is no longer just for the Jews and for the Israelites. This is for everybody. This is for absolutely everybody. And so prophecy, visions, dreams, the pouring out of the spirit, the Bible promises that the gift of the Holy Spirit who cannot be domesticated. We love to, we love to put God in a box. Amen, children. They're actually cheering with me. You lot aren't, but they're with me. <laughs> the Spirit of God is not tame. And the passage speaks to us about filling with the Spirit. What, just breaking it down a step, what even is a Christian? Big question. <laughs> What's a Christian? A Christian is somebody who's set on fire by God's spirit. The Danish theologian Søren Kierkegaard put it so powerfully when he said Christianity is fire setting. A Christian is a person who's been set on fire by the Holy Spirit. It's a challenging definition, isn't it? Because suddenly we're like, whoa, that kind of takes rid of, that gets rid of all apathy in that mo moment. It's like, whoa, fire setting. When you look out of the church now, all the problems facing the church, uh, declining attendance, attacks, from outside, cynicism around institutions, moral corruption from within. What the church needs is men, women, and children who are set on fire by God. That's what we need. Our greatest need is not better techniques. A slicker PowerPoint. Ooh. Us. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, maybe I could do a little better with that. But, uh, 
I'm not saying there's not some room for growth, but our supreme need and the need of the church is to be set on fire by the Holy Spirit. That's kind of what I believe. Jesus didn't leave us in the trenches to dig us, kind of to slug it out on our own. Acts 1 verse 8 says, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and to the ends of the earth. And basically he's saying, you're going to be my witnesses wherever you go. Jesus didn't simply give us marching orders to go into the world spreading the good news. He said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to live in you. I'm going to give you everything that you need. Everything that we need is found in Jesus. So he has everything that we need already. So all we have to do is ask. His rule and reign. Your kingdom come. And when we're talking about this word kingdom, sometimes people are like, what do you mean by the kingdom? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So basically what we're saying is where God's will is done, that's where he's in charge. That's his rule and reign. And it's basically heaven coming to earth. That's what we need. I will pour out my spirit on all people. We need to underline, uh, underline that word all in our Bibles. Sons and daughters, men and women, young and old, rich and poor, different nations and languages. God's spirit is available to absolutely everybody. No barriers, no favoritism, no hierarchy. It's beautiful, isn't it? But what happens when the kingdom of God comes in power? About six months ago, the Lord spoke to me about speaking on revival. Now, I've led a church in Wales for over a decade now, and I've never specifically spoken about revival. I've skirted the edges, kind of talked about little bits around the outside. And many of you will know, you, you know, if you're here for the first time, you won't know this, but many of you will know that Wales has a rich heritage of God moving in power of seeing society not only transformed in the individual lives, but on a macro scale, on a much bigger scale. What happens when society is changed? Some of you be, what, what even is revival? Revival, for me, is when God visits in an, in an intensified manner. And there is an increased awareness of the power, the majesty, the holiness, and the glory of God. Th there's a holy awe that happens. It's like, what happens in that moment is you kind of go from this, yeah, God's probably real. He probably has a little plan for my life to God has revealed himself. He is holy. He is glorious. He is awesome and he wants all of me. That's what happens when God comes in power. Revival, Duncan Campbell says he... He was part of the Hebridean revival in 1947. He said, revival is a community saturated with God. Terry Virgo says this, in the classical sense, revival is not as some of our American brothers would regard it, a series of evangelistic meetings, but rather a phenomenal sovereign intervention from God, which starts in the church, often leading to profound repentance and fresh encounters with God. This overflows into the world, resulting in large numbers of people coming to faith and ultimately leading to a climate of social change. Jonathan Edwards regarded revival as God's major means of extending his kingdom. This is certainly something we desperately need in our modern society. There have, what you might not be aware of is there has been revival after revival after revival after revival around the world. All throughout history, ever since 
Jesus came, there have been moves of God where God has come in an intensified manner and it has seen societies changed as a result of it. It's an awakening. It's a desperate, it's a desperation for God to move. Now, just speaking personally for a moment, I love what Jesus is doing in our church. I love it. I love what we got to celebrate today. That people are coming to faith regularly, week in, week out, that God's power and presence is evident when we meet together. That there's a tangible sense that God's on the move. That community is being formed, that people are being baptized, that young people are encountering Jesus. All of these are good things. But I long for more. I do. I long for more. In fact, there's a desperation for more. There's a brokenness for more. I long for God to move in such a way that whole communities turn to God. I love it when single you know, individuals come to God. I love it when families come to God. But I lead a church because I genuinely believe that God is the hope of the world and everybody needs to know him. <laughs> like That's why I do it. It's not because I want to lead. It's because I just deep down in my core believe that we were meant to be with Jesus and that everybody needs to know him. And there's this picture in this passage in Acts 2. It says our sons and daughters, you know, that they will prophesy. I don't want it to be something in the future. I want it to be now that our sons and daughters are prophesying, that prophesying, that our young men are seeing visions, that our old men are dreaming dreams. Can you see it becomes present, active? It's like it is happening. I long for a sovereign act of God because it's God that initiates it's God that starts it. It's not something that we can be like, I really want. It's like God. It's sovereign. It's an act of the Lord. Because we want to see people come to faith. Our city needs it. Our nation needs it. I long for a fire in the belly of his church, his bride that says, use us, spend us, pour us out. Show us how to carry the kingdom in a greater measure. A fire of the Holy Spirit that burns in each one of us, that pictures the picture of the tongue of fire resting over each of the disciples in the upper room. The difference is that the fire rests and burns inside of us already. It's there. It just needs to be set on fire. A church that's set on fire when the dross and the rubbish is burned away. A church where the focus is Jesus, undeniably Jesus. A church that's utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit. If he says move, we move. If he says go, we go. If he says step out on the water, we step out on the water. A people who are obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit. A people who only do what they see the Father doing. It's not safe. It's risky. It costs a people who are dependent on God, a people who will not settle for consumer Christianity, which is ultimately meet my needs, entertain me and serve me. Instead, they're saying this, let me be a blessing. Let me be a servant. Let me carry the kingdom in a greater measure. Show me how to grow in intimacy. I want to be closer to the Jesus. Show me how to grow in authority. Show me how to pray for the sick. Lord, speak to me in dreams and visions. Lord, let me prophesy in your name. Can you see the difference between those two things? It's challenging. Do you know what? There is a heaviness and unease and an unease over our society right now. People are utterly lost, not just mildly lost, utterly lost. There is no consistent worldview, which means that many of them feel utterly alone. So I don't, there's no grid to which, what do I believe? I have no idea. And, you know, we're, we're in slightly strange times as a nation. Gemma was speaking to me the other day. She's a GP, my wife. So she really gets to feel the temperature of society because she's, she sees it every day. And she says there is an underlying unease at the moment because of what we're going through politically. 
you know, whatever you think about Brexit, I'm not here to have a political viewpoint. I am here to say there is an unease uh, over our society that people are rattled. They're like, oh, I don't know. But, but I'm here to say our hope doesn't rest on our government. Does it? We're called to pray for them. Absolutely. You know, it says in the Bible, pray for your leaders. And I believe that Theresa May needs all the prayer that we can give her. She does. I mean, who? I sometimes thank the Lord. You know, if I'm having a rough day, I'm like, thank the Lord I'm not Theresa May. <laughs> My job is so easy right now. But genuinely, we need to pray for that lady. But my point is, my hope is not in that. My hope is him and in him, al- in Christ alone. That's where my hope is. And that's very reassuring because I can sit there and go, do you know what? I am a little bit unsettled about this. My hope's over here. And that God has given us a worldview. He's given us a story that we're not the central character in. He says, come and be a part of my story. The story where he is the savior, I'm not. He's in control and I'm not. And all I have to do is follow him. I'm like, I can do that. I can spend my life doing that. But I want to speak just for a few minutes. I've got about 15 minutes left. Is that me? No. Close. I want to speak for a few minutes about what it looks like when God transforms society. Every time God moves, it's different. Every time God speaks, it's different. It's beautiful that he will speak to every single person in this room completely differently. I love that. Yeah, there'll be some similar kind of fingerprints of what it, what it would look like, but it's different to each one of them. It's unique. But there is a power in seeing how God's moved in the past because what happens is it raises our faith to want to see God move again. And I'm grateful to David Pike for some of this. Uh, he, David Pike in our church, is an expert on revival, <laughs> basically. He, he, he has this blog called Well Digger or something like that. If you're interested in this, it's very interesting. And much of the world looks at it because David is really great on this stuff. But just to give you a little story, in 1904 in Wales, the overall spiritual condition of Wales was as dark as it's ever been. You know, that was what they say, uh, kind of heavy drinking, gambling, prostitute, you, you know, all of the signs that society is struggling. And the the authorities were close to losing what little control they had. It was kind of a society on the edge. And there was this guy called Evan Roberts who was the central figure in the revival. And he was, I really want to say this from the beginning, a very ordinary person. Because I think sometimes as Christians, we really like to build people up. It's like, he was so ordinary. And, sorry Evan, if I've had a, you know, but he was. And... He began to work down in the mines when he was nine because his, his dad, Henry, broke his leg. And so he was sent down into the mines at a very, very young age, which means that he was uneducated, didn't have a much of an education. But he, very, from very early years, felt called to preach. You know, he was like, he had the fire of God in him. And so at age 26... He goes off to a place called Newcastle Emlyn because it's only until that point that he can begin to get educated. So he goes off to learn and he goes to school at this point in his life. And for a period of time, he'd just been seeking more of God. He'd been saying, God, I just want you. To, I just want more of you. I want more of you in my life. 
And then one day before school in the spring of 1904, he has this profound encounter with God where God breaks in. And the Lord revealed himself in such an amazing and overwhelming way that he was filled with a divine sense of awe. The majesty of God that I talked about earlier, the majesty of God, it's like, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips now, and I've seen the king. It's this moment where you're like, oh, God. And he was overwhelmed, and he would go through periods of uncontrollable trembling that was so pronounced for a four-week period that his family said, what is wrong with you? What is going on with you? And when they pressed him, he just said, he would only say, it's something indescribable. I can't, I can't describe it to you. He'd been shaken to his core. And so one mid- midnight, shortly after this, he's sitting in his room when his best friend, Sidney Evans, breaks into the room. And he, he kind of runs into the room, and he sees Evan there, and this guy's face is shining. Like, the glory of the Lord is on him. And, and so Sidney's, you know, says, Evan, what, what on earth is going on with you? And Evan says this. He replied, I've just seen the whole of the whale, uh, whole of whales being lifted up to heaven in a vision. And he then prophesied this. He said, we are going to see the mightiest revival that Wales has ever known, and the Holy Spirit is coming just now. We must get ready. That's what Evan Roberts said. And the Lord spoke to him really clearly. He'd gone to this school to get educated, and the Lord said, I want you to go home. I want you to go back to Moriah, where you're from, because I'm going to move in power. And so in that moment, obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit, it was like, I'm going home, and he turns and he knocks on the door, and his mum's like, Evan, what on earth are you doing here? She would have said it just like that. Evan, and he goes straight to his pastor, and he asked permission, can I hold some services with the young people? And so his pastor's like, okay. After the adult prayer meeting, he said, can I gather the young people? And so he asked them to stay behind, and so 16 of them, and one little girl stays behind. And after swallowing his initial disappointment, can you imagine You've had this vision, and his vision was there's over 100,000 people are going to come to know the Lord, and he's sitting there. Who's going to stay behind in the 16 of them? He began to explain the reason for his coming home, and he said that he was simply obeying the Holy Spirit, and here at Moriah, large numbers of young people were going to meet the Lord. And above all, a mighty revival was coming to Wales. It was a pretty audacious statement. I think that's what I want us to realize, is how audacious is what he was saying. There was nothing in the physical that would have actually said that this was going to happen. But this was just the Lord spoke to him and said, this, this is going to happen. So on November the 2nd, Evan was back at Moriah and he spoke on the four great tenets, which came to be four things, four points that really characterized what he spoke on. He said this, number one, confess all known sin to God, receiving forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Number two, remove anything from your life that you're in doubt of or feel unsure about. That's just great advice, isn't it? If you're feeling a little bit unsettled about it, probably don't do it. Be totally yielded and obedient to the Holy Spirit, number three. Number four, publicly confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Very, very simple. And the meetings, I talk about it, they broke with the traditional. This was a very traditional moment within Welsh history. But often the ministers just sat down, unable to preach or even to understand the phenomena that took over their usually sedate chapels and churches. They had no idea what was going on. The revival rapidly spread all over Wales as churches caught the fire and the Spirit of God moved throughout the land in great power. 
News of dramatic stories of people coming to faith, confession of sin, and songs of joy just spread rapidly. Wherever Evan Roberts went, the Holy Spirit brought deep conviction of sin and a new spiritual dimension into the lives of formerly fairly apathetic people who went to church. He w- it goes on to say, he was not a great expository preacher. He was a pretty uneducated man, and it just sounds so familiar to the disciples, doesn't it? God uses ordinary people. I don't know about you, I feel very ordinary most of the time. In fact, all of the time. But God uses ordinary people, and that's the lesson of the scriptures, is you read through the scriptures, it's like, God will use who God wants to use. Because it's not about that person, it's about what the Lord wants to do. That's the beautiful thing. This was just a man that was obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit. God said, I'm going to do this. And he went. Some of us, if the Lord said, I want you to do this, we'd be like, do you know what? I need 73 more signs that it's you, Lord. I've put the fleece out. I'm going to do the same thing tomorrow for the next 25 days. And his message was just prayer and exhortation leading to a moving of the Holy Spirit. In one of the valley communities, young men and women walked in procession through the streets, singing hymns and visiting pubs to invite those to come to the meetings. Many of the places were completely deserted and others were, the trade was just depleted. As revival fire spread across Wales in late 1904 and early 1905, although no official records were kept of the actual number converted, 100,000 is considered a very conservative estimate, the number of people that came to faith in six months. 100,000 people in six months. This indeed was a sovereign move of God. Whole communities were turned upside down and were radically changed from a complete mess to glorious goodness. The crime rate dropped often to nothing. The police force reported that they had little more to do than supervise people going in and out of the churches. (laughs) While the magistrates turned up to uh, to their courts to discover that they had nothing to do. That's what I'm talking about, the scale of the change. The alcohol trade was decimated as people were more caught up in what was happening in, in these communities, in these m- communities meeting together than the local public houses and bars. They just shut down. Football, so people just stopped going. The football matches, can you imagine? They just didn't, they, they just didn't bother anymore because God was moving. They were like, oh, football, so last year. Some of you are like, I know that already. I flipping hate football. Lord, may it be true. Families experienced amazing renewal because what would happen is, in those days, the, often the man would have taken the money, you know, who would have been paid daily or weekly, would have taken the money, gone to the pub, spent the money on whatever he wanted to spend it on, and the family would have been left with nothing. What happened was because the men were no longer going to these places, they took the money home. So the uplift in families was amazing. It just changed everything. Society was changed. Many would came to know Jesus in their workplaces as prayer meetings were established in them. This happened a lot down in the coal mines. Miners would sing hymns as they descended in the cages. New believing miners would share their stories with their colleagues and lead them to Jesus while they worked together. The whole atmosphere of places changed so that the sense of the revival going on was inescapable. I just want you to remember where I started. This all started with a very ordinary man. Hearing from the Lord and being obedient to what God said. So what? So what? You might be saying, that's a lovely story. 
Why have I shared this story today? Because I just feel like I'm being obedient to what the Lord's put in my heart. You can never manufacture a move of God. It's a sovereign act of God. But as people, you can position yourself for the Lord moving in power. I don't know whether many of you are surfers. Um, I'm most definitely not. I can't even catch the wave. But moves of God are often called waves of the Holy Spirit by church historians because they often behave like the waves of the sea. So Spirit of God coming. Surfers have no control over the sea. That's the reality. No control over the, the waves. Their great skill is to position themselves to catch the wave. That's what they're called to do, to be facing the right direction, to be prepared for what the Lord wants to do, to be in the water with their board ready to go. So in finishing, what does this look like for us as a community? I just wanted to give one outworking today. My whole series that we're in at the moment is to be kingdom carriers. And there's this one tenant that I wanted to talk about. It's called obedience to the Holy Spirit. If you look at Evan Roberts' story, there was a desire for greater intimacy with the Lord. He was just like, I just want to know the Lord more, which led to God revealing himself powerfully and then this vision of what he wanted to do in this nation. The obedience to the Holy Spirit looked like him going home in that moment, which was against all wisdom. Go home because that's what I want to do with you. If we want to be kingdom carriers in this city and nation, we have to learn to be obedient to the voice of the Holy Spirit. That when the Lord speaks, and often when people think about this, they only think about these huge moments in life, for instance, where we've got a massive decision to make. Should I move here? Should I take this job? Should I take that job? Yes, we need the Lord to speak in those moments. The reality is the Lord wants to speak in every moment of every day. If we learn to hear the Lord in the small things, can you imagine how much easier it is when there's a big thing to make a decision on? If we haven't learned to hear the voice of God in the small moments, then these huge moments become these overwhelming moments of what's right or wrong, I, I don't know. It's like because we're so worried because we haven't learned to hear the voice of God in the little things. And it, in order to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, it's very simple. You have to start listening for the big things and then increasingly the small moments in every day. When you walked in today, were you thinking, Lord, who do you want me to bless and encourage? Who do you want me to pray for? Lord, who are you speaking today? Can you see? That's what it's about. It's just like learning to listen. So the first thing is we listen, and then the second thing is that we obey. Listen and obey. And I guess my, just, my great encouragement is this. The Lord God is always speaking. And therefore, we just have to learn to listen to him. And then when he speaks, we obey. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. Listen and obey. Why don't we stand?